Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black, my co-host, Stephen Gillespie. Stephen, we get our own show to ourselves tonight. We don't have a special guest on this week. Tyler Rucker is taking care of some things in, in his own life, so hopefully we'll be able to swing back around with him next week. But it's, it's you and I tonight. We're talking NCAA tournament weekend two. We're going to give some of our reactions. We're going to talk about some of the prospects and the games. And then I'm going to give you credit for this one. This is fantastic. You labeled doing a final four preview as the final forecast. And I'm like, hey. you know what? <laughs> I, I, I could not come up with that. That's, that's the creative juice I expect from you, Stephen. How are you doing? Man, I'm doing great, Nathan. I'm, I'm happy to be here. You know, shout out to Tyler for going out and doing adult things tonight. You know, just stuff that everyone has to go through every once in a while. <laughs> But I mean, if it's got to be just two people, man, I, I don't know of any two better people to to be recapping this this weekend that we just had in NCAA basketball. I'm excited to talk about these guys. And yeah, uh, I did have a stroke of creative genius with the final forecast, but that might be the heavy hitting that I bring tonight. But we'll see. We'll, see. <laughs> well, I'm glad you are here. And I'm glad, as I've said in previous episodes, that you are the new co-host on this podcast, because if if you weren't here, it would just be me. And the audience would have to listen to me ramble on, do another solo podcast. They would get I, to. They would get to. I, I think over the last, go, going on two years here, I, I think they've heard enough of those solo episodes for a while. <laughs> I think everyone out there is probably happy that I get to go back and forth with somebody like yourself. So we, we won't waste a lot of time. We'll, we'll briskly move through this episode. As I don't think there's too many um amazing thoughts that we're going to give on this show it's, it's a lot of recap and it's a lot of rehashing prospects that we've been talking about for for weeks and weeks and weeks throughout this draft cycle so just just different matchups different games that they've gotten to play and that's all but we'll start with Houston and Villanova so Stephen you actually did a good job at, at outlining some of the prospects that you and I wanted to talk about tonight so you wrote down some of the Houston guys Jamal Shedd and Fabian White specifically and then on the Villanova side I mean Colin Gillespie's been making his bones really this entire year as like a legitimate NBA guy maybe not the most draftable prospect like I don't know if I'm spending a second round pick on him but if I'm creating like a top 80 top 100 like he's probably in it at this point Um, I, I, I don't have too many questions about his game in terms of him at least getting a cup of coffee in the league and hopefully with everything else he brings to the table, he's probably going to end up sticking somewhere for, for at least a, a for at least a short amount of time. Um, and then you highlighted Jermaine Samuels as one of the other guys. I know there's some some Brandon Slater fans out there. Yeah. I was a Justin Moore fan at one point, and be, first of all, best wishes to him as he's mm. going to have to recover from a really tough injury that he suffered during the game over the weekend. Um, I, I, I kind of cooled on him as being a prospect about after the first month of the season because we saw him in more higher higher profile games against better athletes, better players. And he just cannot create the separation off the bounce that he would need to do um, in the NBA. And, and he's a good shooter, but he's not a great shooter. So that definitely limits his case in my opinion is like a draftable prospect as well. Um, when he gets healthy and he decides to come out into the draft, can he win over the favor of an NBA team to at least get a shot? absolutely he's a Villanova guy and we see time and time again I know you have made that case multiple times if they're from Villanova 
they probably have a chance to play in the NBA yep. where they're coming <laughs> from. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it to you first, Steven. Out of some of the guys that, that we highlighted here, is there anybody in particular who really stood out to you and maybe showed you something a little different or at the very least strengthened the case that you were already making for him? Well, I think Jamal Shedd was a guy that I wasn't really taking serious all year long. And I would argue that through the regular season and maybe even a little bit into the conference play that – he he didn't really do a whole lot, of a lot, but then you fast forward to, you know, the, the the tournament here, and he's putting up just absolute mind-boggling numbers throughout the tournament. And he didn't get to do that against Villanova. You know, Coach Wright does a great job of scheming around the you know another team's best players, and I think that it's worth noting here that Houston making it as far as they did without their two top guys, you know, Sasser predominantly yeah. probably being the top of those two. Uh, it's phenomenal. You know, I mean, Houston did a great job. Jamal Shedd was a big reason behind why they, they made it as far as they did. But again, coach Wright and, and that staff, the seniority that the Wildcats do have, uh, it it definitely showed. And although that Villanova really wasn't regarded as, as being a team that could bust some brackets. I mean, it's crazy that people, including myself kind of discounted what coach Wright brings to the table with guys like Jermaine Samuels Jr., with guys like Colin Gillespie, and then the supporting cast. Dixon had a couple of really big games yep. throughout this tournament as well. And I even I started thinking, like, okay, is this kind of like a combo 4-5 type player? You know, he showed that he can stretch the floor a little bit. He can rebound. So, I don't know. When I'm looking at the Houston side, Fabian White Jr. was kind of a big disappointment over the past couple of games because he was really That's your guy, though, man. That's your I was guy. really big. On, I was really big on him coming into the tournament and he had a couple of big moments in the tournament, but he didn't really string together a good run of games. And I think that he can still get a cup of coffee in the NBA, but with other players that we're going to be talking about throughout this tournament, I think he really did himself a disservice as far as his draft stock is concerned. But Jamal Shedd, I think that he kind of raised some eyebrows. It'll be interesting to see what kind of buzz that he he started to generate for himself with this upcoming draft cycle. So the, the last guy I would probably want to mention in this Houston group would be Kyler Edwards. And by yep. the way, if you were looking for spectacular shooting performances, I mean, you weren't going to find him in this game. Houston was one for 20 from three point range. Villanova was not much better five for 21. Um, and even Colin Gillespie, somebody who I, I just got done giving compliments to, he only went one of six from the field in this game. He had the biggest shot, Yep. <laughs> or arguably in the game. But other than that, his presence was really felt on the defensive side of the ball, which is really, I mean, going back to what he brings to the table, that's another area in the game where he's really made his bones throughout his entire career, playing really sound within that Villanova defensive system and making life a living hell for some of the guards on the opposing team. Kyler Edwards, like I said, did not shoot the ball well. Jamal Shedd, all, all of the, the credit we can give him for being hotter than usual from three-point range yep. earlier in the tournament. He did not shoot the ball well. Um, Fabian White Jr. struggled to make himself felt on the interior against some of the size that Villanova has and Dixon Slater and particularly uh, Jermaine Samuels, who also had 10 rebounds in this game. I mean, Jermaine, this was a really good game for Jermaine Samuels to really showcase himself as a potential NBA guy at the next level. I think a lot of those dreams have, have died off in the sense of, I think, and Maxwell even brought this up in our group chat that I think if Jermaine would have shown himself to be a better shooter over the course of this entire year, I think he'd be a lot 
higher on radars and might even be within more top 60s than you're probably seeing him now. Is he going to get a shot in the league, as we've talked about with a good number of these guys? Yeah, I, I, I think he definitely is. Um, but I, I don't know if any one guy that we saw in this game today would be a draftable prospect for me. I'm assuming you, you might differ. I don't know if you've come off the, the Fabian White bandwagon a little <laughs> bit, but um, did, which, would you consider and any one of these guys, either side, would you, is there anybody who you would really consider draftable with one of the top, we have to say 58 picks this year right now? Probably not. I, I came down off of the Fabian White Jr. take, especially when I started getting more into the international side of things. And I'm not going to lie, even talking with Coach Spins and going back and looking at some of the guards that we discussed with him with, you know, Mike Miles and Caleb Love, more to come on him here in a little while. I started really considering how the efficiency kind of did play into my evaluation of those guys and going back and watching more film and preparing for the show. And then even afterwards, you know, listening to him break down their game, I was like, okay, maybe I was a little bit unfair to them. And, hey, there's still time before the draft for, for my board to be finalized. But since then, Fabian White has kind of fallen down a little bit. And the margin of talent when you get to, like, 50 to 80 isn't very significant at no. all. You know, yeah. I, I feel like I could be argued either way, depending on what side of the bed I wake up on any particular day. But I don't know. I don't know if Jamal Shedd might have worked his way up within some people's top 100 just based off a of tournament play. Nathan, you and I both know that a lot of people's first time watching college basketball comes around this side of, or this yep. time of the year. So maybe he kind of bolstered himself up into some into some big boards. But overall, for me, I would say I was high on Jermaine Samuels Jr. coming into the season. I actually had him within my top 60s, 80s, 100s like early on in the season. Since then, he's fallen outside of my top 100. But again, with that margin of talent, I, it's not unreasonable that he doesn't work his way back up in there. But I'm probably not spending one of, one of the 58 draft picks on any of these guys. But, you know, I'll, I'm circling names for that undrafted free agency in Summer League. Yeah, I think, I think Shed's probably going to be a guy who comes back next year. I'd be, I'd be shocked if he was in the draft. Um, Fabian White Jr. and Kyler Edwards will both be in the draft. Colin Gillespie will yep. be eligible for the draft as well as Jermaine Samuel. So there are some names out there. I just don't know if I would draft any of them in particular. The, Jamal Shedd has some fans in the draft community. I know that I went back and forth pretty early on in the year. Um, I, I, I've been a big Marcus Sasser guy versus Jamal Shedd. Yeah. I think Chuck from Chucking Darts put, put forth an argument about Shedd. Well, that he's a scrappy guard. He's the only six foot one, but he's built well to himself. When he does get inside, he can he can do a few things around the basket. It's just when you look at some of these smaller guards, Stephen, you have to be able to shoot the ball at at least mm -hmm. a, at least a great clip. Um, I've never seen that from Jamal Shedd. He's a sub thirty percent three point shooter on the year. I know that he got hot from three at some points during this tournament, but I don't see that being a consistent part of his game. He's a ground bound guard. He doesn't really get up off the floor. When he gets around the basket, I don't fully trust the runner to be like the most consistent part of his game. He's a good passer. I'll give yeah. him credit. What he can handle in transition, even in the half court off that initial screen up top, he can make some good decisions with the basketball. And then we know what he brings on the defensive end. He's competitive. He's tough as nails. He gets in your grill. He averages over a steal per game. I, I get all of that. I just don't know how good of an NBA guard he, he could end up being. I, I think he's much more of like a really good college guard 
and and that's probably where where we're going to leave it for for him as as for Fabian White I I see the case for him too like when you when you wanted to put Fabian White as part of like the top 60 like I didn't think it was crazy like we're talking about especially when we're like in that 40 to 60 range like mm-hmm. nothing really seems to be that crazy particularly in this draft class it's just not as deep in my opinion as uh, as other years but I break down Fabian White's game individually and do you remember you remember a player from SMU by the name of Ben Moore? Absolutely. Yeah. So they they compare very favorably physically. Like I think they're mm-hmm. both 6A around that 220 225 pound mark. Um they I wouldn't say they're like excellent athletes. I think Ben's definitely like a level or two above Fabian, but in terms of like the role that they play on the floor and where they're best suited at within the offense, they're both really not as reliable stretch forwards as I would like them to be. I know you might trust Fabian White's jumper a little more than I do. I probably don't. I think both of them are best suited like with to, to operate out of the dunker spot within an offense. And I just don't think Fabian finishes around the basket nearly as efficiently as somebody like Ben Moore. And the reason why I bring up that name is that I, I liked Ben Moore as a prospect probably more then than I do like Fabian White now. And even now I would probably still take Ben Moore as somebody who I'd rather have on my team. And he's somebody, he hasn't been able to hold down a steady NBA job. So it's like, if that's the type of comparison I'm going to have with Fabian White, and I think it's going to be a struggle for him to, to, to stick in the league if he's not able to space the floor much better from the corners and, and bring that jump shot into a part of his offensive arsenal, then like, why am I looking at him potentially spending a draft pick on him? And that's, that's a line of thinking. Maybe you see where I'm going and maybe you'll be able to expound upon that a little bit. I don't know, but that's kind of the line of thinking I hopped on this afternoon when I was doing some more prep for this podcast. And that's like, ah, I'm, I'm probably going to pull on some of these guys a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's a fair comparison, but like, like we've all been preaching, you know, the, the tournament's a data point, you know, you have to use yep. it. It has to be part of your evaluation, but it's not everything. And I feel like a lot of us at no ceilings understand that. And, when you when you weigh the tournament compared to the rest of the season and the conference play, you see a great defender. You see a guy who is capable of stepping out on the perimeter and holding his own against some of the bigger guys in, in the in the paint. You see a guy who rebounds well. You see a guy who can stretch the floor. We're talking about a guy who was almost at 40% three-point shooting on reliable volume. Uh, and a guy who you know that can move the ball and you trust to make a smart read. Again, he's not going to be one of these guys that, breaks anyone down off the dribble. He's not the best, you know, athlete on the floor, as you already spoke to Nathan. But when I'm looking at a guy at the tail end of the second round, a, a, a guy who kind of fits the modern day mold of what, a, what I want in a four, a guy who spreads the floor, helps my big and my ball handler, whoever that is, whether it be a guard or a wing, whoever. If I have a guy that I know that I can rely on to space the floor, make a good read, and can hold his own defensively, that's what I feel like Fabian White Jr. brings to your team. And that's why, you know, for a while, I was entertaining him in that second round range. Since then, he has fallen down a little bit, nothing significant, and he could climb his way back up there. But I don't know. He just he he fits a he fits a role that I think a lot of NBA teams are looking for at that four man spot. And that's why I had him kind of at that tail end of the second round. It's it, it's a good role, like like we kind of agree upon if he can shoot at least well enough. From, mm-hmm. from the corners and be able to space the floor at some level, right? Um, but there's not really too many more words that, that we need to say on, on some of these guys. We can, 
we can move on. Let's 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 do the audience a favor. Let's okay. go to one of the mean potatoes games that we could get into, which would be Arkansas and Duke. We know all the guys. Or we knew all the guys who were going to be in this game. Jalen Williams on the Arkansas side. I guess before we get into all the more usual thoughts that, that we can have about the Duke prospects, we can start with, with Jalen Williams. And, and you're, you're the resident Arkansas guy here in No Ceiling, Stephen. I, I want your thoughts on not just Jalen Williams in this game, but now that Arkansas is out of the tournament, you can kind of give your perspective on his tournament run and really the season as a whole. Um, because over the last two weeks, he was – he was somebody who I, I didn't know if he was going to be likely to declare to go into the draft, right? I had brought him into like my top somewhere in between like the 40 to 50 range because I figured I have to at least bring him into the conversation regardless of what he does because his play has merited that. But now he's done so well in prime time tournament games to the point where his stock is likely as high as it's ever, as high as it's ever been, probably higher. He's got himself in front of mainstream evaluators, all these executives that you just pointed out. You just mentioned it a few minutes ago. The tournament is definitely a time where some people do get to really watch some of these prospects for the first time, especially NBA guys. And some people listening out there might think that's a little crazy, but like when you're, when you're a general manager and when you have a scouting staff and you even assign scouts to certain regions, like there's only so many games that you can actually get to and actually see um, right. to, to really get some fair evaluation and depending on how some travel schedules work out, like you just might not have the chance to see a prospect like Jalen Williams earlier in the year compared to in the tournament on national television on the brightest stage possible. This might've been like one of your anywhere between like your first to third time seeing Jalen Williams. And when you see him do as well as he did against a Duke team that has a loaded front court, we're talking Mark Williams and Paolo Vincaro. We'll get into the thoughts on those guys in a second. But 19 points, 10 rebounds, three assists, two steals, such an intelligent basketball player on both sides of the floor from start to finish. I'm probably going to have him in my early 30s when, when my next big board update comes out. And he might not be done climbing because I, I think at this point, and I'll be curious to get your thoughts on this, I would be shocked if he did not only declare for the draft but stay in the draft. I, I don't think he's at the point where he's going to test the waters anymore, Stephen. I, I think he's going to be in the draft. And I think NBA teams have to look at him very seriously with, with thinking about spending a late first round pick on him or more. Yeah. Who knows? Or more. That That's totally fair. So what we saw in this game against Duke is a little bit of why I'm concerned about how he translates to the NBA year one. And I know that especially even Tyler Rucker, who couldn't be here tonight, a lot of people will say big men take time, and I'm, I subscribe to that logic as well. But here's the thing with Jalen Williams is that if he's not drawing charges, which we I think that we'll both agree that at the next level, players aren't just going to be running through him. They're going to be jumping he's over He's not him. drawing a charge every other play down the floor at the next level. It's not going to happen. Absolutely not. He's not getting those superstar calls at, at the next level, right? So if we're taking his best defensive ability out of – out of the out of the equation right now he to me he doesn't possess the verticality nor the second jump that is required to be a, a good to great nba level big man now is there a role that he can play sure because i think that a lot of people would argue that travion williams is an nba big man too and worthy of being drafted so 
I, I, I think Jalen Williams is a rover. I think he's much more of like a four man who can kind of rove and, and, and play like safety a little bit in the defense because he is so intelligent because he sees everything coming like a step or two ahead of everybody else. Maybe that doesn't lead to taking a charge, but maybe it leads to a timely double team or a really good rotation or making a play on the ball that somebody else isn't able to necessarily see a step or two ahead. Like I, I think you've said this multiple times, like if he's, your primary rim protector, that's mm-hmm. probably not the best course of action for your team. Like, I, I don't think he's a five-man in the NBA. Maybe he isn't some small ball lineups, but I think more traditionally, he's probably a power forward, which if he's able to step out, shoot the ball, stretch the floor like we've seen him do in the tournament, and then defensively you give him that role where he can kind of just make plays uh, around everything else that's going on, I, I actually think he could be a really good NBA player. Well, and that's the thing with me, Nathan, is that if he's not going to be a five, He's not necessarily the most fleet of foot. And I'm not saying that he has to, you know, be, you know, Aaron Gordon out there at the four or anything like that. But you still it's one thing to be able to see. It's another thing to be able to react. And that's what I'm concerned about with Jalen Williams is I don't see the lateral movement uh, with him right now. And we saw what he looked like against a big team. And and we could argue that, yeah, Gonzaga is a big team, too, but their bigs are more skilled than they are powerful. And then we, we saw what he looked like against a powerful front court with Duke. And it, it wasn't pretty, you know, if he's going up against finesse and skill, he can kind of, he can kind of play that a little bit, you know, but when we see power play with a guy like a Paolo Boncaro and a Mark Williams, that's where he really struggled. And I think that he's going to see more of that at the NBA level than he is, um, you know, a Gonzaga type of front court, you know, there might be certain teams and matchups where, yeah, you can use him and he can, he can give you a little bit of an advantage, but I don't know if uh, as a four, how reliable he'll be playing against other fours, because what we see in the NBA is there's not a lot of Jalen Williams is at four, right? There's a lot of guys who are, are wings and they're really fast and really strong. And I don't know if Jalen Williams has a lateral foot movement to be able to keep up with that level of play. And if he's not, if he's not protecting the rim and he's not blocking shots and he's not able to keep up on switches, is him just being a really good passer worth it? And, and that's what I think NBA front offices need to kind of ask themselves when they're looking to draft him this year. But I come, I, I, I agree with a lot of the points you just made. I come back to the fact of how he reads the game on defense. And even though he's not the most fleet of foot, we're, we're seeing a guy like, and, and this obviously isn't a direct one-to-one comparison, but a lot of people said the same thing about Opera and Shengu. And he can get by at times defensively because of how he ultimately sees the game. Um, I, I expect Jalen Williams to fill out his body more. I think he's got a good frame to him. He's definitely going to get bigger and stronger. Is he the quickest guy on the floor to maybe you, you want to put him in all of these like on-ball defensive type of situations? No, but I think if he can... It, I don't know if Hydem's the right word, but generally when you're going up against another NBA team, it's not like all five players on the floor are generally like the most dynamic offensive players, sure. right? Like there, there's going to be some place on the floor where you can put him to the point where he can kind of like read and see everything going and he'll be able to make a play on the ball or at least help contest or, or do something from a team defense perspective to where you can have him on the floor and you can take advantage of some of those strengths that he brings to the table on offense. Like I said, especially if the jump shot continues to round in the form, I think like Shen Goon, the biggest thing for Jalen Williams is he's going to have to figure out how to not foul out of games. And mm-hmm. I think that's going to be hard for him because if he is in this take the charge mentality, 
it's not even just that people are going to be able to finish over him. It's the fact that they will go through him and how the NBA calls fouls continuation. Like he's going to pick up more blocking fouls than he did in college. Like what a blocking foul is in the NBA is a charge in college. And that's not going to be the same thing. So maybe, maybe that's the point to, to hit on that, that I believe would be more problematic for Williams than like the lack of, of foot speed stuff. Cause we do see some NBA guys, if they read the game at a high enough level, they're able to make up for, for some of that. Well, and what we see with Shangun is that those questions about the defense are more than fair because defensively he still has a long ways to go. He, he fouls out all, all the time, or if he doesn't but, foul out, he's very close to. But what we see with Shangun and why he won MVP in his league was that he's a good finisher around the basket, and his and his touch traveled. I don't yep. see the same level of touch with a Jalen Williams. And I don't see him finishing around the basket as well as what we saw with an Alperen Shangun. And again, so if I got a guy who I can't trust as a five to protect the rim, he's not a good vertical athlete. He's going to give up second chance points because he doesn't have a good second bounce. He doesn't finish well around the rim. And he's a sub 30% three-point shooter right now. Am I, am I looking to draft him potentially in the first round because he's just a really cool passer like that? And I'm an Arkansas guy, right? And maybe I'm. Just, are, are, are you just dogging on him because you want him to stay another year, Stephen? No, I. I mean, <laughs> look, I, this is a win-win for me because if he gets drafted, then I can say, "Hey, Arkansas is still pumping out NBA level talent." And I can beat my chest on that, right? And if he comes back, then we have a really good recruiting class, and we could be even more dangerous next season. I genuinely am concerned, though about the uh, the level of praise that he's getting right now and what his role is going to be at the next level. And if he goes to a team, he needs to go to one that's going to bring him along slowly. Um, because, I mean, even Alperin Shangun, as many concerns as we had, I still had him as like a, as a lottery-level talent, um, kind of flirting with top 10 potential. He's got run immediately, and he still has a lot of concerns and a lot of issues, and he's playing for a team that's going to have potentially another top three pick. You know, it might be a little bit worse for Jalen Williams is all I'm saying. So where where would you take him? If he comes in the draft and he stays, where would you take him? Well, if I'm a team that's got three first-round picks, I could I could understand flirting with a later one and saying, okay, maybe this is one of those guys that I'm going to draft and develop. But if I have one first-round pick and one second round, I'm definitely looking at other centers before I take him, if I take one at all. Right now on my board, I want to say I have him kind of middle of the second, and I know I'm going to be on the lower end, but I genuinely just have a whole lot of concerns on both sides of the ball. To me, the appeal with him is that he's a really cool passer, and I don't know if that's going to be something that I target in the first round. We're still we're still a few weeks out for me doing the deep dive of all deep dives on a lot of these guys and Jalen Williams is somebody I absolutely need to spend some more time with, but I'm starting to see the appeal. I'm starting to see the appeal when he's able to stretch the floor to some degree. He's able to bring the defense out to him. I think he's good enough with the ball in his hands to make something happen off the bounce. He has some spin stuff that he can go to. I like, I, I agree with you. The finishing right at the basket, like three feet in is a little concerning, yep. particularly against size, but I do like the, the little bit of the, the runner that he can go to off the move. I think he does have that in his bag. And I'd like to see that level of touch from him, especially if he's going to continue to expand on his outside game. I, I'm coming around to him more than, than I did previously. So like, I, I, like I said, I'm probably going to have him in like the early thirties at the next update of my board would not shock me depending on who's in and who's out of the draft. If he climbs up 
a little bit higher. But I think at the end of the day, you and I have some of the same reservations. Um, let's move into some of the you guys. So I guess the biggest story of this entire tournament has been Paolo Bencaro. And that, that, that's Maybe. not to, that's not to, oh, who, who's been the bigger story, Stephen? I mean, could you, you can even make an argument that on his own team that Mark Williams has had a better oh, tournament oh compared, oh compared to, compared to expectations coming into the tournament. I mean, Paolo's was a, it was a top three consensus guy all season long and he played like it, right? Mark Williams is a guy that even myself, like I was like, do I take this guy in the first round? And I know that there are a bunch of guys on the ceilings that had him lottery level, even late first. But I think that Mark Williams has done the most for his draft stock on this team compared to Paolo because Paolo's been like a top three guy for a lot of people all season long. All right. So then, then we'll table Paolo for a second. Then if you think Mark Williams is, is the bigger story, Steven, then what has he done in this tournament to really scream out to you and say, you better move me up your board. I think going up against like a wider variety of big men um, and still dominating and still showing that it doesn't matter who you line up across from me. I'm either going to go through over or around them. And he displayed a couple, right? Like it's, it's not everything, but it's something it's a data point. He did, he did display a little bit more finesse than just the, you know, being a dominant physical presence around the basket and that's tantalizing you know if a if a front office is going to see a guy like mark williams run the floor which we all knew that he did extremely well a rebound and block shots but display touch from you know just outside of arm's reach from the basket that's impressive and then just being that consistent presence for duke you know because paulo for as great as he's doing i'm not knocking him he's actually gone up my board um, not solely due to what he's doing in this tournament, but also the conference play is, or excuse me, the conference tournament as well. You know, Mark is showing a lot, man. And I just think seeing it more consistently, seeing it up, seeing it against more than just, you know, the, the Baycots of the world and, and, and centers like that, but showing it against. He's going to have to go up against Baycott again, though. That that's yep. going to be another great test. Yep, absolutely. So, but we're seeing it against a wider variety of front court. Um, we, we see teams kind of planning to keep him away from the basket now, like he's becoming more of a focal point in um, scouting reports. And he's still being, you know, sought like sought after from his teammates and he's converting efficiently. And again, he's doing more outside of what we knew that he was going to do coming into the tournament. He's showing more flashes around that as well. So or he's he's right there. Lottery level for me, he he's taken the biggest jump between big board 4.0 to 5.0 so far. Well, not counting Dale and Terry, but yeah. I, I mean, he's, he's definitely been rising for me as well. I know you and I were going back and forth in the group chat last night about that. We, we, we had already started to move him up when we we're thinking about our latest big board or our next big board update, I should say, even yeah. before he had, you know, some amazing moments in, in, in this latest round of the tournament in the second weekend here. With Mark Williams, I guess what I keep coming back to is I evaluate him so similarly, and, I, and I'm glad that, that Tyler Metcalf, by the way, in our group uses the words low maintenance with yeah. Mark Williams because that's exactly what it is. Like he only took in that Arkansas game, he only took six shots. It was six of six from the field, but he put in 12, so 12 points, 12 rebounds, three blocks, very low maintenance. You don't have to feed him the ball. He's not somebody calling for it in the post. That, that's not his game. He's a role man. He's operating out of the dunker spot. He's a transition guy. These rim running centers that we can talk about when we get to the NBA, 
that's going to be your role and your calling card, that's fine. There's plenty of athletic big men that make that their calling card within the offense. And they play good, like great to really big minutes for a, a pretty good NBA team. Right. The name I come back to is Robert Williams. And mm-hmm. I, I know it's, it's unfortunate timing to talk about Robert Williams and not trying to, to rub it in Rutgers face or anything like that. The resident Boston fan and, and those ceilings, but what's a big reason why Boston has done what they've done in the second half of the year. It's because really all year, he's just been a vicious, vicious shot blocker. He swats yep. everything away around the basket. He's not the greatest center to play in the post one-on-one, right? Like I would call him the best one-on-one post defender, but when you play on the right team and you have a bunch of guys who can play point of attack defense on the perimeter to limit penetration, or they're really smart. Like, like even when somebody gets a step on Marcus smart, smart and, and guys like Brown and Tatum, they still know what angle to play their man at, even when they get beat on that initial step to funnel them at the right spot towards the basket to where somebody like Robert Williams has a chance to swat that shot away. And a lot of these dude guys are really starting to figure out how to play a similar style. Paolo Vaccaro, notwithstanding, I, I still have my concerns with him and my issues with him defensively, which we can get to, but a lot of these other guys, Wendell Moore, AJ Griffin, Jeremy Roach, Trevor Keels, they're, they're, they're starting to really figure out how to play with somebody like Mark Williams as we've gotten later in the year. And Williams has only continued to benefit from it because even if he's not getting the block, he's contesting virtually everything that's around the basket. And you just factor in what that means defensively along with the type of hyper-efficient offense that he brings from a finishing standpoint. And that's when it gets easier to envision him as this like mid-first-round talent, even this lottery-level talent, because Robert Williams, I I know he didn't go here in the draft, but like at one point, the Texas A&M big man was like a top 10 prospect in the country and i think if you would ask people today doing a redraft mark williams would probably be a a, a top 10 guy at this point because he's people had a lot of questions about his 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 maturity and everything going on off the court but now that he's grown up a little bit in the nba he's been in a really stable culture like the boston celtics he's been a top 10 talent out of his draft class and the best thing about mark williams is that we don't have any of those concerns about him coming in we know that he's probably going to be a professional from day one when he sets foot in the nba we know he's going to work hard and with his athletic talent the fact that he's probably in like the 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 top three to four percentiles of of big men athletically in the nba right when he sets foot from day one that's a big deal and i think when you factor in all that that's that's why i've been starting to come around on mark williams as well yeah it, it makes a lot of sense too that we're seeing a jump in paulo's production along with the jump in Mark Williams's production too, because one thing that Paolo has been getting praised for, and rightfully so, is his ability to make reads off the dribble. And, oh, they're and so great together. Passes. Well, and that's the thing, is that without Mark Williams, do we see this level of production on from Paolo with this passing? I, I don't think so, you know, because what, what's the one thing that Paolo does? You know, he, you know he's going to get it on either the wing or the elbow. He's going to take a dribble, and he's going to spin at the rim. And that's going to draw a lot of attention because Paulo has has terrific touch. But what happens whenever too much pressure is given to Paulo is that Mark Williams is left wide open around the basket. And the one thing that people keep bringing up with Mark Williams is the load time that it takes for him to jump. I don't know what other centers in the NBA that players are or that you know evaluators are looking at when when they look at Mark Williams and say his load time's too long. 
there's not a lot of just how, how many seven footers are honestly one foot leapers in the NBA? Like I I don't I, know. Exactly. I mean, they're, maybe they're, Giannis. They're, <laughs> maybe Giannis if you are, count him as a five. A lot of them are two foot leapers. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't uh knock me either, but yeah, and and I think that it's just something cool that we can bring up. And you know, I'm not knocking other evaluators out there or anything like that, but sometimes I think that we get caught up in evaluating guys in a vacuum or evaluating guys, you know, chronologically or you know, numerically on our boards and just saying, okay, well, we know that Mark Williams doesn't jump as as quick as like a Kennedy Chandler or whatever, right? But look at him relative to the position that he's going to play at the next level. He's fine. He's not going to be a guy that you're like, oh, he's going to take five seconds to, you know, bring the ball up from his hip to the top of his head and elevate. You know, he's he's a fine athlete and he runs the floor very well. He's a very fluid runner in the, in, in the full court situations as well. So again, what we're seeing with Paolo all rightfully earned and deserved. But the one thing that we can point to as, as his passing ability is that he has a reliable finisher around the basket, a guy who's finishing, you know, like above 70% around the rim. And that, that makes your assist numbers, you know, climb up. Let's actually use that as a transition into Palo because you just mentioned the chemistry between him and Mark Williams. It's been mm-hmm. spectacular, not just in the tournament, but going even back further than the ACC tournament, really the last like month of the season, those two have been excellent work together. But most recently, why is that? It's because, and I can't figure out how teams aren't getting better at defending this for the life of me, but I swear Duke runs that double drag screen <laughs> every single time down the floor. And why is it working better now? because Paolo is so much more confident shooting from the outside. He's making that defense sag out to him. And when defenders come to close out on his shot, he can get around him. Is he the quickest guy off that initial step? No, but at the same time, I think he's got enough counters off of that initial move. He has the footwork. He has the power to be able to get around guys or do one or two other steps and and get to where he needs to go. And then because that defense is coming out to him, as you just said, it's leaving Mark Williams wide open as a beneficiary and Paolo has the passing chops to be able to get him the ball on those lobs. And watching every single thing come together for him, the mid-range scoring, the three-point scoring, the finishing around the basket, the passing, offensively, I'm, I'm being left with fewer questions than I had when we were coming into the tournament. Defensively, I still have all the questions and I know your reaction. I think you still have all all the questions as well. I think that it's not, I don't think it's about ability with him. I don't think it's anything related to his athleticism or that he's slow footed. I don't think it's any of that. I just think he needs to be recoached and rewired in terms of how he approaches playing defense. And then I think he can be a better defender in the NBA because we know he's got the body to be able to hold up against people in the league. Like if he's got to play somebody out of the post if somebody's driving directly at him, I think with the right coaching and, and, and the right rewiring, he'll be able to play his angles much better and, and contain those drives more than just being obsessed, in my opinion, with wanting to make a play on the ball versus actually doing the right thing defensively. But that's that, that's potentially it, it's whole other <laughs> it's whole other podcast. But I mean, we we want to talk about the exciting offensive development. So with that being said, Stephen, is he? making his way back up the board for you um, as everything has played out. Yeah. I mean, I'm almost like having to force myself not to put him number one solely due to what we're seeing in the tournament. He's climbed 
you know, roughly from four to two in a matter of weeks. And that's hard to do, Nathan, as you know, because once you get to that top portion of your board, it takes a lot to, to climb, you know, and what we've seen happen at the same time as Paulo getting better and more efficient as an offensive player, we've seen other guys have struggles. You know, we've seen Chet struggle with his fouls and that's a whole nother podcast in itself. Like people go to bat for, for Chet Holmgren more than anybody else I've ever seen, which I mean, is we fair. Can, we, we can, we can talk about some of the other top guys in relation to Powell. If you want to bring them up, that's, it's fair game. I just think, look, Chet's great. He's phenomenal. He's a top three talent. And I think that people understand that. But the one thing that I wish that we saw more of was just more unbiased takes on evaluating his game. Because what we'll see, we see it a lot with mainstream guys, right? Um, They'll say, yeah, he had a bad game, but look at the numbers. And yeah, he had a bad game, but it's because of X, Y, and Z. Like, it's hardly ever like a fair assessment of, Chet messed up like Chet did something wrong like he did not adjust his game like he didn't adjust his style of play and that's all I want to say so you know when we look at Paolo in relation to Chet uh, he struggled in the tournament at, at, at various times outside of that opening game and then we saw Jaden Ivey he struggled too and we're more quickly to say yeah okay like these were the concerns that we had with Ivey and then Jabari Smith against Miami was a terrible game for him offensively as a shooter right he did other things well, but we we not. He did virtually down. everything Paolo, else better on the court, which I I don't know if we gave him enough credit for when we talked about him last week, but it was really only the shooting that he didn't do well. And he, and again, you know, when we hear you know criticisms about Chet Holmgren, we say, oh, we had eleven and fourteen, and that's a quote unquote bad game. Well, you could make the exact same argument for Jabari Smith. He put up a double double. He had like ten and fourteen. Oh, and by the way, he he improved his playmaking as well, right? So. It's just like, I feel like draft Twitter as a whole and even some mainstream, you know, um, you know, agencies out there were so quick to protect Chet Holmgren. And again, I love Chet. He's a top three talent, like hands down. But I don't think that he fairly gets assessed. And meanwhile, we have a guy like Paolo Boncaro, who we said at the beginning of the season could be a number one guy. And then he comes in the season. We're like, well, you need to improve your playmaking. He's done that. And then we said, all right, well, your defense is trash. You need to improve it. He's done that. He still has a lot of things to, to improve on, but we've seen him and what you just spoke on, Nathan, was that the give a crap factor. When he's engaged, he's a he's a pretty good defender. He's not like a Chet Holmgren or a Mark Williams level defender, but when he's engaged, he can he can do a little bit of damage. And one thing I think that he kind of falls in love with is that he has his safety blanket. You know, like as a kid, he's got his favorite blanket and Mark Williams, and he knows that I can gamble a little bit. Like, I can reach on this drive and try to poke out a steal, or I can try to get a block from behind because I know that Mark Williams is going to be right there behind me to clean it up. Maybe that's what he needs ultimately at the next level, show that he is a capable defender. These are questions that I had about a guy, you know, about a guy named Anthony Edwards coming into the NBA. It was the give-a-crap factor, and we saw that when in his, like you know, lone season in SEC play. He gets to the NBA and he cares a little bit more because he's in a system and he's got better talent around him. Paulo doesn't have the the talent question, but having an elite collegiate rim protector, I think that he just falls in love with that and gets a little bit lazy because of what we've seen with him when he is engaged. He can defend, but I don't know, man. Like he's climbed up all the way to two for me, and I wouldn't rule out the possibility of number one. But I, I feel myself 
having to talk it down more than talking it up, if that makes sense. It's amazing what happens when he transforms his offensive game from wanting to settle for all of these crazy, ridiculous contested jumpers to limiting himself, like in the Arkansas game, for example, just, yeah. just two three-point attempts, right? Just two to keep the defense honest, to work himself inside the arc, get to the line where he went seven for eight. He didn't shoot the ball efficiently from the field overall, but it's the types of shots that he's been taking and mixing in playmaking responsibilities, being able to set other guys up, take that pressure away from Wendell Moore, having to handle every single responsibility within the offense, letting Jeremy Roach focus more on scoring from the point guard possession versus, you know, having to set everybody else up. It's really helped this team out a lot to, to bring balance to every lineup that they're trotting out on the floor, any rotation you want to talk about. And yeah, I've been really, really pleased with Powell. Am I going to have him one? No, I, that, that spot is reserved for Chet. It will remain reserved for Chet, in, in my opinion. Um, I tweeted out the other day and it actually got quite the traction on social media about how I think Chet's been underutilized in the half court for Gonzaga on the offensive end all sure. year. And you saw another example of it the other night where when he actually did catch the ball in areas where Jabari Smith and Palavin care have gotten to work out of all year. I like his jump shot the best in that elbow mid range area out of the other two guys, even Jabari Smith jr. I think Jabari Smith is the better three point shooter. I think he's always going to be the better three point shooter. I think that's going to be his NBA calling card. I think Chet's going to be maybe not excellent from three point range, but I think great in a lot of areas. And I think he's got a mid-range game that can be untapped in the NBA because of the amount of space that he's going to have to work with. We know that he can finish easy plays around the basket. We know how well he shoots around the rim. We can talk about some of the defensive boards as you highlighted, but I think offensively, an NBA team is going to figure out how to use him a lot better. Maybe not in like this incredibly high usage role, but just get him more shots in different areas of the floor other than just go clean up this mess, right? or finish this play running at the basket in transition. I think an NBA team's going to be able to utilize him in the half court. And when he continues to develop, get a little more comfortable off the dribble, I think he could be a, a pretty scary offensive player, more than I think a lot of people would, would care to admit. But in terms of that number two spot, when we really talk about Paolo versus Jabari, we, I've tried to argue all year for Jabari as being just this elite spot up shooter at this point to where I don't need him to put the ball on the deck all the time when he can just shoot over anybody he wants. Mm -hmm. but then you look at Paolo who can put the ball on the deck every single possession and make something happen with it to the point where this is such an offensive driven game to where if you at least have the size to be an average NBA defender and you can bring potentially exponential offensive value at a prized position. You really, you really have to consider that that package. And to your point, Stephen, I'm glad that you said that, the, the give a crap factor. Like there is no reason why Paolo shouldn't at least be an average defender in, in the NBA. Yeah. Like I, in my opinion, I really don't see many, many excuses for that. It, it's got to be the give a crap factor. And again, you know, I like in the concerns that I have with Paolo on the defensive end, I had a lot with Anthony Edwards and 
two different roles uh, in the NBA defensively. You know, unless you're, you know, a Marcus Smart of the world or a Patrick Beverly, you, guards aren't necessarily going to be asked to be locked down defenders, right? And Anthony Edwards, I feel like relative to, to his peers at his position, he's definitely serviceable because of his athleticism and his strength. I think Paulo, the, the emphasis on him being a better defender is going to be a little bit more prevalent. But again, 6'10", 250, moves like a cat. I mean, this guy can do so much. And I think that depending on the team that he goes to, he's going to get uh, maybe just as good a coaching as he's getting right now, possibly a little bit better. Who knows? But again, learning how to defend at the NBA level. And we're talking about a guy earlier, like a Jalen Williams kind of being a rover defender. I mean, Paulo Boncaro in that role could be scary as well because of his physical traits and, you know, his athleticism. So he might not be one of these guys that we're looking at like a Jalen Williams and saying, can he be a primary rim? you know, protector, how is he on the weak side? Paolo, I think, profiles a heck of a lot better on that side, of, um, you know, or that role defensively than, than I think a lot of people might otherwise think. So let's move into the second last game that we'll really talk about tonight. We'll, we'll close out with the game that I saw in person, St. Peter's against North Carolina, and then we can, we can give some fun final four predictions, things that we might be looking for there. But Miami and Kansas, this was a battle in the first half, a battle that mm -hmm. Miami actually got the best of Kansas. And then Kansas decided to actually come out and play like the number one seed that they are and blow yep. the doors off of Miami. And it's a very similar result to what we saw St. Peter's against North Carolina, where North Carolina just completely overwhelmed St. Peter's. The Cinderella story was over. Similar thing happened with Miami. Although Miami is an ACC team, they have two bona fide stud scorers, at least at the college level, and Isaiah Wong and Cameron Mugusti. I'll be curious to, to, to hear if you think either one of those guys should really have NBA scouts drooling a little bit, the potential that they might be able to bring them in in some capacity, even if they don't draft them. Um, but obviously the story is about, about Kansas. And yeah. I want your take, Stephen, Anybody in this game, you can go any direction you want. Who impressed you the most? Man, I'll I'll kind of round robin this because I think that you can answer it differently uh, depending on what you're looking for. Remy Martin has had himself a heck of a tournament resurgence. I mean, coming off the bench, playing clutch minutes, you know, playing big time moments. Remy Martin has been all over the place. I don't know if he's a guy that could be sneaky. I mean. We know that there's only going to be 58 players drafted, but when we talk about summer league invites, we talk about, you know, two-way contracts, undrafted free agents, like Remy Martin is undersized, but he's a, he's a microwave scorer and he's showing it in Kansas right now. And then Lightfoot kind of low-key had a, a big impact on this game. McCormick, you could say the same thing, although that he was hurt, you know, he gave, you know, concentrated doses of just badass him on this team you know he was just amazing when he was on the I think floor. he's gonna be he's gonna be good to go for the final four right I believe so McCormick we'll, I think so. we'll see we'll see I, I I'm curious to see what Kansas does with him what for practices and training and things like that because he was only able to give them a couple minutes um at a time but you know McCormick was good I think that Jalen Wilson uh his points weren't there but his defensive impact and his ball movement were felt and then we're left with the top two guys, right? You know, Christian Brown and Oshai Baji. I think that Brown throughout the tournament has been the more consistent presence. He's been the more steady hand. He had a nasty dunk in transition, which was amazing to watch in this game. But I feel like this was the game that Oshai, you could argue that he got 
you know, garbage time points or what have you. But we saw a bit of a resurgence in him. And I tweeted out before the game that I hated that this was going to be some people's first impression of Ochai Baji was watching him in the tournament. And they're going to go without seeing the, the tremendous season that we saw from him. But, you know, hitting threes, he's been a great defender, like all tournament long too, by the way. But the offensive output hadn't really been there. He finished, I want to say, with like, what, 18 points close to it. Um, he, he had a good game. Uh, he hit for multiple levels that one four, area four steals on the defensive end too. four steals. And, you know, the one area that you, that you point out in his game, Nathan, he did hit a, you know, a, a pump fake from the three point line to take a dribble and hit a pull up midi. So he's showing a little bit more versatility, you know, as the tournament goes on and it was good to see him kind of find his footing against Miami. But I think the role players, you know, a combination of, you, you know, McCormick Lightfoot and of course, Remy Martin were the guys that, really kind of impressed me more so than anybody else be, due to the level of expectation that I have for some of these other guys. Before I answer the question that will obviously be geared more towards Kansas, is you fall in love with Isaiah Wong a little bit. And he, he's a guy who I think people, people had him on their radars before they came into yep. the year. He's had one hell of a tournament run. Very, not, not a shooter, not a shooter, but a smooth score off the balance, can get to the basket can pass a little bit, and then on the defensive end, he can make some plays on the ball. Any any buzz there for you about Isaiah Wong? You know, I get the appeal, but I think that there's a lot of guys at his position and similar build that do a lot of the same thing, but at a more consistent basis and even probably give you a little bit more on the defensive side and the playmaking side. But I would be lying if I didn't say that I wasn't impressed with the, the level of output that we've seen from Isaiah Wong, both in the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament as well. Uh, he he's picked up that efficiency and that consistency a lot more as of late. Um, but I don't think that he's kind of climbing up the board as much as some of these other players that have had, you know, similar, if not greater tournament runs, but yeah, not to knock him. He's had, he's had great stretches, but I wouldn't put him within my like top 58 right now. But when I get to that top 80 to 100 range, I'm starting to entertain him a lot more seriously than I was prior to this tournament. I, I agree. I think, I think certainly within a top 100, I, I think he has to be there, especially with, with what he's done. He was, yeah, he was a guy I went back and forth with Mavs draft about before the season started. And yep. now that I've been able to get some more eyeballs on him in the tournament, I, I will be honest, I did not watch much Miami basketball <laughs> during the regular season, but um, now that I'm able to get some eyes on him and I will be doing a, a little bit more of a deep dive on him as we close out some of the weeks here leading up to the draft, I, I think top 100, absolutely. I think you could probably start talking me in the top 80 uh, as well. I think he's, he's got to be on some sort of a longer form board. So my answer to the question, I told you I was coming in with something not creative. Here it is. I can't spicy. wait. To, can't wait to hear this. Listen, man. I've watched Christian Brown for two years now. I had a feeling. I know that everybody's had the Ochai Abaji train rolling. No ceilings included. We were, we're mocking him like top 10 now. And I'm like, I want to fall out of my chair. I'm like, are we really going to mock <laughs> Ochai Abaji like with, with a top 10 pick? Christian Brown will not be ranked higher on my board than Ochai Abaji. That, that, that's probably not going to happen. However... I really would not be shocked at this point if Brown's the player who has a better career. And okay. I really, I really would not be shocked. I think for some people at this point, that's probably spicy. 
although a lot more mainstream evaluators are starting to come around on Christian Brown. Like ESPN was having him pop into his boards. Like Sam Vecini was saying some nice things about him yep. on their most recent episode. We know Jonathan Wasserman's been a fan of, of Christian Brown pegging him as like a potential top 20 guy. It's, it's not going to shock me, Stephen, if he has the better career. I look at what Christian Brown's doing, what he's been doing for Kansas all year, particularly in this tournament. Now that they're putting the ball in his hands, they're trusting him to make decisions in the half court as yep. well as in transition. He's been a transition player over these past two years, but now that he's really starting to make things happen from a playmaker perspective in the half court, he's been able to do some things from a shot maker perspective off the bounce inside the arc, has a nice runner he can go to, he can finish around the basket, all of the shooting splits check out. His synergy percentiles are terrific. The fact that he can handle, make decisions off of a live dribble and not just be a player who solely comes off of a handoff or off a screen to do one thing, right? And not that Ochai Abaji isn't excellent doing some of those one decision plays, whether it's quick stop and pop, whether it's come off the screen, get himself into an open spot up three, knock it down get all the way to the basket off of that drive. He has an open lane off of a handoff to get all the way to the basket finish. He can do that. He can cut to the basket, finish off that vertical lob along the baseline. He can do these things, but he's a one action, one read type of player, in my opinion. And I see Christian Brown as being a multiple action, multiple read type of player. And I also think he's the better defender of the two. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not, not going to rank him higher, but well, it sounds like to, you have no reason to not rank him higher, Nathan. I think what Ochai, what Ochai does at an excellent level, there's still a, a good to great chance that that beats what Christian Brown can do in terms of being more versatile, but maybe not being able to do anything at a great to excellent level. Like the fact that Ochai Abaji can be a flamethrower from three-point range, I think that gives that gives people enough of an argument to rank him in the mid mid first round. If you want to have him late lottery, fine, go for it. Like that that gives you enough of an argument. The fact that he is that elite of a spot up shooter at this level. But I I like versatile guys. I like guys who can dribble, pass, and shoot. And if you're buying into the jump shot for Christian Brown, especially, that's where the argument comes into place, man. I just listen. If we're coming back to this conversation five seven years down the road. And Christian Brown earned a really nice second contract with the team who drafted him. And Ochai Abaji is moving on to another team. I'm just saying it wouldn't shock me. I think that there's a I think that there's a lot of logic to what you're saying, Nathan. Because although I would disagree with you on some aspects in your comparison uh, or who you like better, you know, different parts of their game, I do see your point that Christian Brown is probably going to be the most consistent. Like whatever he is, his first you know two three seasons. I don't necessarily seeing it improving a whole heck of a lot. Like he's going to be one of these like well-rounded guys that gives you a little bit of everything at a good consistent level. Whereas Oshai has that potential to be, you know, a higher tier player, right? Like he can be a more dynamic or explosive scorer, but probably has a little bit more weaknesses in his overall game compared. I don't to know if he's more dynamic. That not not that Christian Brown is like really dynamic and all that's a player, but in terms of like if we would use the word dynamic with Ochai, I'm not sure dynamic is the correct word. I think if we're gonna like peg his scoring up a few notches, he he could be like that ultimate heat check type of guy to where yeah. he just gets rolling, he gets hot, and he's making like like he did in this game. He gets hot in the second half, he ends up finishing eight to twelve from the field. 
Like that, that's the type of player he can still be at the next level. And I would agree with you if that's where we're going to compare the two as like offensive talents. Yeah. I don't, I don't think Christian Brown is really like that much of a, a heat check guy. Although we we've seen those games from him this year, like St. John's the game that I still, you know, smack myself in the head over because I couldn't <laughs> get there in person to see it had the yep. tickets, but I couldn't get there, but we've seen that. But yeah, if we're talking like, game on a game the game basis who's the most likely to chip in 18 to 20 points what's going to happen i would agree with you it's a bocce yeah and again you know there's certain aspects of ochai's game that i'm buying a little bit more higher than what you are right and not to downplay christian brown i have him you know kind of flirting with late first round considerations i still haven't got him into my first round yet you gotta get him there get I, get him there Stephen. i'm gonna rub off on you enough and by, by the time we're at the draft, I think I will have rubbed off on, enough on you to floor where you have there. Well, and I think that you and you, both you and Rucker have, right? Like I have yeah. listened more to Christian Brown, you know, uh, potential and promise with you guys more than I like. There's really no one else outside of no ceilings that I'm really hearing a lot of Christian Brown buzz about. Like there's like, oh, okay, he's had a nice game, but there's not that consistent level of, you guys got to buy in on Christian Brown. You guys have to listen to uh, to us when we tell you that Christian Brown is going to be a good NBA player. Like it's not really buzzing around as much outside of no ceilings. I think Chuck might have a few words to say about that. I specifically remember Chuck asking a question about him for Sam and Penny, where he said that Christian Brown could potentially have a sneaky lotto case. Now okay. I, so I, I didn't go twosies. that far. I did not go that far. That's, <laughs> you, you know, Chuck, Chuck, Chuck says a lot of smart things. He also goes out on a lot of limbs. I did not go out on that limb, but I would not the only one. I couldn't tell you who I think Chuck likes more between like a Christian Brown, a Jake LaRavia or a Vince <laughs> Williams Jr. You know, and that's where I kind of stand on that. But again, we, we, that, we, we love, we love Chuck. We love Chuck. Oh dude, Chuck is the absolute best. You know, we, we both had him on, you know, when you were doing the solo, when I had my own show solo, we both had him on. He gives a lot of great insight. But again, that consistent, like every couple episodes, Christian Brown, Christian Brown. No, Christian nobody's Brown. doing it. I agree. No one's doing it like we are, man. So let's get into this last game. Um, in-person thoughts, St. Peter's against North Carolina. Steven, I don't have I don't have many because it just it just wasn't that type of game to where I'm sitting here and like I'm writing a bunch of things down on my phone <laughs> that I could just I'm going to blow your mind on a podcast. It's just, it wasn't that kind of game. North it Carolina was, was pretty good, weren't they? It, it was physical dominance from start to finish. Armando Baycott finished with 22 rebounds. I I looked up, it was like, not, not even that deep into the second half. It was like near the beginning of the second half. He already had like 16, 17 rebounds. I'm like, good yep. God. Like St. Peter's had nobody who could match up with his size. And I, I guess it's technically a fair question to ask if Baycott's like an NBA center. I, I don't think that he is, but can, can you completely rule it out? Kind of like Matt Penny said on him and Sam's latest podcast. Can you rule it out for somebody who produces at the college level? Like he can, like he can't rule it out. I, I would agree with Matt. I don't know how much of it's going to translate for him either, but he was a big reason why they were dominant in this game. Yep. Um, both Caleb Love and RJ Davis did not have their best shooting performances. Although Caleb Love, some of the shots that some of the dagger shots that he was able to hit, including that one where he, he kind of hit hit the defense with that Euro step off the bounce and finish around the basket. That was something that doesn't always whip out every game. 
Brady Manic was probably the ultimate equalizer in this. We got to talk about him for a hot minute, man. I got questions about Brady Manic. Are Are you about to say that like he he he's jumping up your board or like what's what's going on? I man, um, I'll put it to you like this: our a mutual friend of ours, Lee Branscom, who you know had the Witch Carolina podcast, and he was doing you know the Charlotte Hornets, you know the the Buzzbeat podcast. He put out like I want to say like mid to late January. He said, is Brady Manic a second round pick? And I was just kind of like, hey, man, I love you, buddy. Like, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And I wasn't really giving it much of any thought. And I don't think a lot of people around that time of year were giving North Carolina or was giving North Carolina thought other than, you know, maybe Coach Spence, you know, keep, you know, keep pushing that Caleb Love love out there. But Brady Manic was just a guy that was like, okay, like he's just a good three point shooter. And then we get to the conference tournament and he's putting up these games. And then we get to the NCAA tournament and he's putting up like 28 and 25 and, you know, almost 20 points in this game. And I'm just asking myself, Nathan, like he's got size. He can give you minutes at the three and the four. We know that he can shoot. He showed that he can finish around the basket against a really good rim protector and in Defo. I don't know, man. Like, does he not scream Spurs 15th man to you? Like he could be on a, he could be on an NBA roster and give you kind of like that Steve Novak, Matt Bonner. Yes, I know I'm putting out, you know, standstill white guys as comparison. That's okay. But uh, I think Matt, I think I think that Manic could could give you minutes in the NBA as a flamethrower, like just standstill three-point shooter. So the thing that I can admit about Manic is if there are guys like Garrison Matthews who can mm-hmm. earn NBA contracts – why can't Brady Manic earn an NBA contract? Is he going to be drafted? No, no. I, I, I could not see an NBA team spending a draft pick on him. But if we're talking about guys who may not even be ranked in my top 80 or top, I guess he'll probably be in my top 100. It'd be, it'd be bad to say he wouldn't be there like at this point, but. He's not right a- now, but I'm having a hard time being like, okay, like when I'm getting to like, Baylor Shireman, like who would I rather have on an NBA team? We're right going to filter out like 15 to 20 guys probably. So I, <laughs> I, I think at some point it, I'd be pretty hard pressed to admit that he wouldn't be there. Um, but if we're talking about guys who might not be initially ranked on our boards and, and we're, we're working for an NBA team and we're looking at all these guys who we could potentially tell somebody to give them a call, see, see if we can work something out with them. Let's see if we can bring them in. Like, he has to be near the top of that list at, at, at this point. He has to be like, he's a guy you have to at least see if it can work in the NBA, because if it can, we're talking about a guy who scored you ready for this. He scored in double figures in 16 straight games, including the ACC tournament. And now the NCAA tournament to where they're going to the final four, 16. As like, games. as like a fourth option exactly he's not he's not really one of their go-to guys although he actually was against against st peter's that that was more of a size thing like him being able to take advantage um at that four spot when st peter's like a lot of their four men are probably more like the equivalent of threes even though they're not like athletically quick enough to, to to play the three on on a higher level court but and then when you factor in the shooting touch like he went four of six from three in the game i Steven, I can't figure out for the life of me why people are leaving this guy open. Why the hell are you helping off of Brady Manic? Like, it seems like every time these guys do that, like, he's knocking it down. Like, he's getting less coverage than Leaky Black. 
And like, what's up, what's up with that? You know what I mean? Like Leaky's a fine player, but Brady Manic has just been on an absolute tear lately. And I don't know, man, like I'm having a lot of hard feelings, like even potentially keeping him out of my second round. Like the more I go and look at the tail end of my mock in my top, you know, 80 that I'm putting out right now, there's got to be a team out there that looks at Brady Manic and is just like, pick him up. Like, let's just see what the guy's got. We, he's, he's hitting consistently. Like if Davies Pertons can command, you know, hundred million dollars in free agency, then I don't understand why it's out of the realm of possibility for Brady Manic to be a second round draft pick. I mean, if he's on, if he's on a team with at least two, where he's, he's in the lineup with at least two guys who, you know, command as much gravity on offense. And he's like the fourth or fifth option within that lineup on the night, probably the fifth option. But if he's alone spotting up in the corner, like you tell me you wouldn't want him for a few minutes a night. Like we're, we're not talking about somebody who's going to be like an, an eighth man for a team. Like he's probably no. in like the, 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 ten, the 10th to 12th man role if we're being nice. But those guys are also valuable in the regular season for an NBA team. And if he can share the court with one or two starters who can put the ball in the basket and demand that much attention on the offensive end. Like tell me Brady Manning can't step in and, and hit a few threes or attack a closeout on, on rare occasion and, and knock down something around the basket. Like I, I he's I got think a he little can. touch around the rim too. Like he, we saw that again against, you know, Defo who's no slouch of a defender. So I don't know. It's just something I felt like we, you know, would be prudent to bring up, but I don't know. Brady Manic is a guy that I, I can't get out of my head right now. I mean, he's only he, he's probably not the guy who you want on the defensive end. No, probably NBA not. Team. No, <laughs> but like eight, eight minutes a night, ask him to take like three, four shots. And yep. he, if he can knock down two or three of them, that's that's pretty darn good. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Flying very under the radar for a good reason. But at the same time. Yeah, I, I think he's a pro. And if he's not a pro in the NBA, I, I bet you some team overseas is going to pick him up. Like, Absolutely. I, I would be shocked if he's not playing professional basketball, at least somewhere, for the next, like, four to six years. I, I, Which I is still really hard to do. You know, it's still really hard to be a good it European. Is. Yeah. It is. Like, he's he's on the older side. I think he's – is he going to be 24? I think he's going to be – Yeah, 24. he's a graduate. I know that. So, he's, you know – he's he's already done with school he's he's literally a grown man out there playing and maybe that has a little bit to do with his production i don't know but he's, he's a post-grad player so he's, we know that he's, he's up he's there 23 age. so by the time he would start his nba season he would be 24 so I'm, which i, I think is actually pretty young as far as post-grads go like not to get like too niche here but like as far as post-grads go I feel yeah like the that's... fact that he wouldn't be 24 before the draft he technically has like a year in his favor, which is fine. It's still not yeah. sexy for NBA teams, but like, yeah, like even if it's not in the NBA, playing pro ball somewhere else, put, getting buckets in the G League. Like I think, I think he has some level of life after college basketball to him. And yeah. I think going to North Carolina was definitely a big boon for him to be able to have that, especially now that they're on a Final Four run. And he can um, still put up big like North Carolina still in the fight. We could. This is probably not going to be the last game that we see Brady Manick have a good outing. Probably not. And it, it's a little crazy. I think we've had the most glowing words about Brady Manic, and it wasn't about <laughs> any of the other guys on, on North, North Carolina. I'm still, I'm, I'm still not that big of a Caleb Love guy, man. I'm, I, I, I want to buy in. Coach Spins did an excellent job at breaking down why he could have a role in the NBA. 
We talk about these heat check type of shooters who can change a game. If he is doing some of the stuff that he did off the bounce in that game, along with some of the other moments that he's had in the tournament, if he's able to do those things, but just in terms of three, like, I don't know. I just feel like I can recuperate more value on that pick for, for what I'm probably going to be looking for Caleb Love to, to provide than, than what I'm getting with that pick. I don't know. I don't know. Do I you think- like him or Isaiah Wong better? Because I that's, think that that's tough. That yeah, is tough. I think that's where, you know, when you're asking me about Isaiah Wong's draft stock, I don't know if like when I get to the Caleb Love level of the draft, that if I'm just like, okay, like Isaiah Wong, he's probably not going to get to the basket as much at the next level. Um, it, But we know that Caleb Love can shoot a little bit better and he's a, probably a little bit better of a passer. I might take Caleb Love. Still, I think but... I, yeah, I think, I think I would take Caleb Love as well, but that that's more of a toss up than I think people would, yeah. would care to admit. Um, I, I would actually, I'd, if coach is listening to this podcast, I would love for him to like comment what we share or something like bring him and Richard on the show and they can have it out between, you oh, know, which they, one do we take? That would be a battle. Now, if, if <laughs> either of you guys are listening, I please go, somebody go do that podcast. Um, Let's let's wrap it up here. So let's go. Okay. Very quick final four thoughts. We get Duke, North Carolina for a final four. Thank God we get that game. That is the best thing that we could possibly have for the end of Coach K's career. And then we get Kansas Villanova on the other side. So we get we get two games chock full of blue bloods, and then we'll have a blue blood championship as well. So even though we didn't get all the number one seeds, and then we didn't get Baylor and Arizona and Gonzaga. I, I think we have one hell of a final four right here. Like I'm not going to complain about this. Um, anything in particular, Stephen, that you're looking for in the final four? Well, so for this final forecast, and I just wanted to say it again, because I just love the play on words that I use there. Um, you know, look, we, we know that this is coach K's last season and they were already supposed to have their last match again, uh, you know, in the conference play, but we saw it. We're seeing it again here. I think that Duke has, they're just too big, like Baycott. I don't know how he's going. He's not going to have a 2020 game again. I, I I can almost guarantee that with the rebounding and the scoring, and the defense that Duke's front court has. And so if we if we're ruling out Baycott putting up a 2020 performance, uh, Brady Manick is probably going to be their leading scorer. If I've had to venture to guess, R.J. Davis hasn't really had the best tournament. Uh, neither is Caleb Love. Both of them, I believe, have have had only quote unquote only. 120 point performance and with Duke they're playing their best basketball of the year and they're just rolling so I would just I would just think that Duke has that game and then Villanova Kansas is pretty interesting because I think if you're looking at just like depth and and top end talent you have to go Kansas but the way that coach Wright is coaching right now the way that that defense is playing like it's It's gonna gonna be be a rock fight it's gonna gonna be, be a rock fight it's going to be ugly. I would probably still lean Kansas just because I think that they can hit you with a bunch of different looks, uh, especially if McCormick is going to play at a decent level. Uh, we saw Lightfoot have a good game. Jalen Wilson can kind of cancel out some of those shifty forwards, I think, for Villanova. And then we're going to see it. how much, how many times do you think we're going to see Colin Gillespie post up Remy Martin? Like, that's what I think it's going to come down to in, in their matchup. So I think I'm going to pick the same two teams. I'm going to pick Duke and Kansas. I think 
as far as the national championship would be concerned, even over the course of the UNC game, it's going to come down to your boy, Wendell Moore, as well as Jeremy Roach, continuing to hit those mid-range jump shots slash runners that they've been hitting over the course of the tournament. If they keep knocking down those shots, along with everything else you're going to get from Paolo Vincaro that we talked about, Mark Williams, we didn't even talk about AJ Griffin. Holy holy cow. He's been, he's been phenomenal. Like, I, I think he's going to end up top five on my board. I, I, I really do. I, I don't feel I have the some same defensive level of concerns. I have some defensive concerns with him because he's kind of fallen off a cliff defensively lately. Yeah, I, I think more of that's understanding versus actual talent and ability. Like physically, he can match up with any of the wings that you would want him to. Um, in the NBA, he's only going to continue to get even stronger, which is crazy to say. He's already like six, yeah. 225 pounds. Um, I think it is more of like an understanding type of thing. And it's it's those same processing concerns that you see, even on the offensive floor side of the ball as well. I mean, he's mm-hmm. similar to what I've talked about with Ochai Abaji. Ochai Abaji has gotten better at being a multi-decision guy if he has to off of that initial action. AJ Griffin is not that, that multi-decision guy. He is one track mind. If I'm coming off the handoff, I'm going to get downhill. I'm going to try to score at the basket. If I have to stop and pop and create something in like that 10, 12 foot area, I can do that, but he's not looking to pass the ball. He's not looking to, to change course or change direction. Like he is that type of offensive player. And I think I would, I would imagine over the course of his NBA career, he's going to be able to make multiple reads off of those progressions. He's probably going to get better as a pick and roll player. I think he's going to figure some of that stuff out. And then on the defensive end, I think he's got a lot to work on as far as playing off ball defense, communicating with his teammates, playing the right angles versus similar to Paolo kind of being, being a little careless in terms of, I think I can still make the play on the ball from here. He, he's got some things he has to clean up, but, what you can't teach Steven is when he does stop and pop for that jumper and he rises up over everyone, the hang time on his jumper yep. is ridiculous. I still think he's coming back a little bit athletically and he's hopefully going to get more of that pop back as well, especially once he gets into his rookie year in the NBA, he's had one of the best freshman prospect shooting seasons that, that we could probably point to. And yeah, there are plenty of weaknesses we can talk about, man, but his strengths, what his strengths are, are about as important to the NBA game as, as we can point to right now. And that's why I'm, I'm getting less and less concerned about him by the day. And, and that's fair. And one thing that I will point to at that Arkansas game in particular is that his operation in the mid-range was something that he hadn't really shown a lot due to the construction and the schematics of, of that Duke team. But we saw him kind of drive to the basket and hit a couple of, you know, operating on that pivot foot, fall away jumpers, or even kind of up and unders a little bit. The fact that he's not just a standstill three-point shooter and, and profiles to be able yep. to get to the basket a little bit better, uh, that, that weighs in his favor too. But again, you know, I have to go back and look at that defense before I start submitting where I think that he'll go on my big board, but definitely a top seven level talent. Um, there might be a couple of prospects that I prefer at five, but I, I also would not be like vehemently opposed to anybody having him at five either. So Duke, Kansas, who you got? I got to go Duke, man. I think that Duke is just too strong and it's like Kansas is limping its way this far and getting by on depth and their coaching. And 
I think that Oshai has got to show up for them to stand a chance. As good as Brown has been, as good as Wilson's been, as good as Martin's been, they really need Oshai, their best player that we've seen all year long, to step up. But I think that Duke, they just they're they're too big, they're too strong, they're too fast, and it's just like they're a team of destiny this season. I hate to be super cheesy like that because I'm typically not, but it's just like everything is going right for them this late in the year. I'm also going to take Duke, which means that we're going to get a UNC uh, Villanova rematch in, in, in the championship, and it's going to be one of those two teams. That wins and North well. Carolina wins the title as what? Where are they? The, the, the fifth seed this Eight year? Eighth seed. Eighth, Eighth seed. seed. That's right. That's right. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. We thank everybody out there for continuing to listen to, to Draft Deeper. We've been doing an incredible job from a performance perspective, and that's that's not possible without – every single one of you listening out there. So I That's can't right. thank you all enough for the support. Steven, go ahead, plug yourself, plug what you're doing. Yeah. Well, um, you know, again, I just want to kind of piggyback off of what you just said and echo that appreciation. You know, the fact that I've only been on draft deeper for a little over a week now, the amount of love and response, you know, getting emails and DMS and things like that. It's been, it's been a lot to me. So the, the draft deeper audience is top notch. They're top shelf. No one beats them. But, you know, if you want to continue to follow me, you can do so on Twitter. It's where I'm most active, at Stephen G Hoops. That's Stephen with a P-H-G, then Hoops. Uh, you know, written work's going to be coming up this upcoming Sunday. I have a piece about Wendell Moore Jr., and it's going to be a fun, fun article. So stay I tuned I hope he that. doesn't disappoint you on Saturday. Well, if he even if he does, he's done so much throughout. <laughs> he's done so much throughout the year that I think that he should be considered as a first-round talent. And, uh, you know, there's going to be more on that in written form uh, Sunday at uh, noceilingsnba.com. Yeah, and we got a, we got a great show lined up uh, later on in this week, Nathan, that I'm sure that you're going to plug away. But, yeah, just keep following No Ceilings NBA. You can follow that on Twitter, too, No Ceilings NBA on Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Make sure you are subscribed to this podcast wherever you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. As Steven said, make sure you are subscribed to the Substack, noceilingsnba.com, pumping out written content every day, Monday through Friday during the work week. We got Steven pumping out content on Sundays now. We're, we're up to six days a week. Holy, holy cow. We're, we're going we're gonna to start stacking up the content, my friend. It Can't beat going. it anywhere else. Can't, cannot beat it. No, nobody's doing what we're doing. Um, so definitely make sure you're tuned into all those channels. As he said, Twitter at No Ceilings NBA. Make sure you're following us there. Later this week, coming up, we got Rashad Phillips, the legend, coming guy, on this man. podcast. He's got he's got two guys that he picked out who he feels are being undervalued and slept on. So we're going to talk about quote unquote his guys on that episode of the podcast, and then we're going to keep the guests rolling. Gonna gonna throw you a little bit of a curveball next week. I think Steven's going to be hosting a show coming up here soon. It's going to be an exciting moment for him, and then yep. We, we got a mock draft coming in the works as well. Come on, you got to do a post-tournament mock draft. I mean, who, who doesn't want to do that, right? You're, you're, you're breaking rules. I think you're contractually obligated if you do any sort of NBA draft content and you don't do a mock draft out after the tournament. You're, you're breaking all the rules. <laughs> and then hopefully not too long after that, we will start doing our, our big board comparison series, peeling the onion layer by layer. That, that's going to be really exciting to do that kind of a peek in every single week. I think it's going to be fantastic content for the audience. So once again, thank you all so much for listening. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Bye.